A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, fellow time travelers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me for the journey through space and time to help support the making of this podcast series and to get exclusive access to new content every week. Sign up to my Patreon.com site. It's easy. Uh, just go to Patreon.com, search for me by name, uh, and be prepared to part with a little bit of cash. It's cheaper if you sign up for a whole year at one go, but you can pay monthly. Uh, I'm fine either way, but I would love to see you there. Please strap in now to the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. As the clock turned and a new century began, the worldwide search for liquid gold, black gold, the energy that would power the coming millennium, was ramping up. Intrepid engineers prospecting in the Zagros Basin faced dangerous and difficult conditions. With investors' money drying up, they were told to abandon the search. The determined team pressed on, discovering Mosjid Soleiman, the world's largest oil field. Unimaginable wealth started flowing as oil and its byproducts began reshaping and remaking the entire world. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. In last week's episode, it was 1903 when you took us to meet two magnificent men and their flying machine. Where are we this week? Hi Paul, hi fellow time travellers. Yes, last week we saw Orville and Wilbur Wright take to the skies for the world's first powered flight. This week the year is 1908 and we're touching down in Persia in what is now modern day Iran. We're with a band of intrepid oil prospectors uh, working in the dangerous Zagros Basin. Under the leadership of the chief engineer George Reynolds, the team strike it rich and oil starts to transform the world. We're in the early part of the 20th century and we are in, well, at the time it was known as Persia. It's been Iran for a long time now. Iran's another old name for the same place, one way or another. Personally, I always find Persia a more, I don't know, romantic, magical name. But uh, it certainly was, if, 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 in, if you're going to ask the question, where are we this week? We're in Persia. It's all to do with oil, the hydrocarbon fuel source, which obviously at the moment is, you know, is very, um, well, it's, it's up for debate, isn't it? You know, st- stop oil campaign trying to, get rid of the use of of that fuel 
but we depend upon it hugely at the same time. And there doesn't seem to be any realistic replacement anytime soon, regardless of what the champions of renewables say. But it's also true, and we'll get into it, that oil is a blessing and a curse, particularly for the people who, who find themselves living on top of it, especially for those communities that are that are there on the on the surface of the planet beneath which the oil lurks, saturating rocks. People tend to imagine them oil in great caverns under the ground, but it saturates the rock like a sponge that's holding a lot of water. The moment that you might say that matters in, in some respects is mid-June 1908, and we're in the presence of an Englishman, an engineer called George Bernard Reynolds, and he's at work in the Zagros Basin. Reynolds was born originally in Sussex, he was, he was from quite a well-to-do family, actually. His dad was a, a vice-admiral, had been a vice-admiral in the British Royal Navy. Reynolds trained as, a, as an engineer, and an earlier part of his working life had been in India, British India, as it was then, working as an engineer on the railways, on the, on the railway network, which was extensive in India. But but by the time we encounter him in 1908, he has been he had been in Persia for several years looking for oil, prospecting for oil. And and on this day in mid June, he let's let's imagine him in that kind of um, I don't know dressed a bit like an Indiana Jones character, I suppose. Let's imagine him in some in, in some dust blown, wind blown, difficult terrain uh, when one of his staff puts into his hand a telegram, which was the principal means of communication for people in far-flung places at that time. And it's from his employer, which is, uh, at that moment, the Scottish Burma Oil Company. And he reads it, and it says that he is to cease work, dismiss the staff, dismantle anything worth the cost of transporting to the coast for reshipment, and come home. (laughs) So... It's a direct order to shut up shop, but continue to imagine uh, George Bernard Reynolds in this difficult location at this time, and he simply smiles and pockets the telegram and keeps working for reasons that will become apparent. He was in that place at that time because he had been hired by a fellow Englishman called William Knox Darcy. William Knox Darcy was, well, another another one that you would describe as an adventurer. He had grown spectacularly rich. He'd made himself spectacularly rich from a gold mine in Australia and loaded up with wealth. He was back in London, living the high life, and he got bored with it. You know, there's only so much champagne and caviar a fellow can have, I suppose. And these guys, guys like like Knox Darcy, are endlessly fascinating because most folk would think that if you struck it rich, if your ship came in, that you would just live off the fat of the land. You'd go somewhere, get a lovely accommodation sorted out and just live the life of a kind of latter-day prince. But so many of these characters are not like that. It's not about 
Or it's not only about the money for them. There's that streak running through them. I often think there's a line attributed to um, Robert Falcon Scott, Captain Scott of the Antarctic, who said, you know, something along the lines of far better to die like this than in too much comfort at home. That even with all the, the promise of the chaise long and... <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the London clubs and all of the rest of it, they get beyond that and they want to do something exciting again. So not Starcy was like that. And so I suppose Reynolds was like that. You know, they find themselves in these impossible places because it's in their nature. So Knox Darcy, William Knox Darcy, had at that point been approached by an Armenian called Kitabchi Khan, who was looking for investment because he had a he had a venture an adventure in mind in Persia, and you know I don't know maybe they meet in some London club I'm not quite sure where the encounters took place but on the 28th of May 1901 so some years before our moment Knox uh, Darcy and associated partners struck signed up to at the cost of £20,000, which is £2.2 in in today's terms, a deal with the ruler of Persia, Muzaffar ad-Din Shah Qajar. Right, so there are all these these adventurous types and they're all moving and shaking. And basically, Knox Darcy and his partners go into business with Kitabchi Khan to take advantage of an opportunity. And... The opportunity is what becomes known as the Darcy Concession. And it granted to him for 60 years, six decades, exclusive rights to prospect and drill for oil in a a half a million square mile swathe of Persia. Now, we know with the benefit of history what that's potentially worth. Imagine that 60 years he's got without any possibility of anybody else getting in on it, he gets to explore that entire area for oil. Now, what do we know about Iran and oil, Persia and oil? So the paperwork's done, 1901, and by by May 1903, a couple of years later, less than, the first exploration company is set up. And Darcy, Knox Darcy, appoints Reynolds, George Bernard Reynolds, to be his head of field operations. Uh, George Reynolds has a background in engineering, as we've already heard, but he was also a self-taught geologist. He had involved himself in that field of study. So Reynolds is dispatched with all of this expectation on his shoulders to the Zagros Basin in Persia as it then was. And it was no secret by then that there was probably oil there. It's not like it's not like oil was unknown at, at that point. You're far from it, because in places like the Zagros Basin and others, it was suppurating out of the ground. There was so much of it, it, it was just rising to the surface in pools and, and puddles. And bitumen as well, which is another associated material in terms of that kind of, you know, those hydrocarbons. It was just coming out of the ground. And so all sorts of adventurers had seen it, had seen these pools of oil. And they'll, anyway, the locals, the people that had lived there for forever, they knew all about it. So it's not like it was unknown that there was oil in that part of the world. So he gets to work 
Reynolds gets to work, but it's a vast swathe of territory. And you're kind of pricking at the top of the planet with relatively primitive drilling uh, equipment, hoping that you hit the mother load, sort of thing. So they get underway in 03, and there's early signs that they're in the right neck of the woods, but by 1905, there was still nothing. There'd been no strike, no no particular discovery, and Knox Darcy's pockets were emptying. And he's a wealthy man, uh, but there was only so much that he wanted to commit without return. That part of the world was difficult place to be. This was then as now, really, in some respects. It was hot at times. There were aggressive local tribes people who from time to time made it plain that they would prefer that uh, Reynolds and his lot would clear off. And the, the locations were remote. It's the middle of nowhere. Miles and miles of bugger all. So all of it's challenging. And so there's a kind of a clock ticking louder and louder in the background. You know, how long are we going to keep this going? So Darcy kind of gets cold feet. Knox Darcy kind of gets cold feet. And he, in turn, strikes his own deal, ceding his rights to a, a Glasgow-based, Scottish Glasgow-based Concessions Syndicates Limited. And this outfit is, in turn, financed by the Burma Oil Company. There's a chain of finance going on. But in any event, there's a Glasgow-based Concessions Syndicate Limited, and it's it's got Burma Oil Company money, and they go into a deal with Knox Darcy that they will exploit his resource for themselves. And you might wonder why people were so persistent. Well, by then, in, the, in that early part, pre-First World War time, the British Royal Navy was planning to switch from coal to oil as the energy source for its warships. And that's a big deal. You know, the British Royal Navy was the biggest navy on the planet. And if if they were thinking about switching to a new source of energy, then anyone that could provide that source of energy was quids in. And so, with all of that in mind, at the highest levels of the British government, it was deemed prudent that the Darcy Concession, as it was known, should remain in British hands. They didn't want anyone else ending up having control of where all the oil was suspected to be. So, in the face of all of that, Reynolds, he just kept on going. He was a you know, geologist, engineer, he was there on the ground and he just kept on going. And it's important to remember that unlike now where you know, you'd get instant emails on your mobile phone and get being pestered constantly with one thing and another, at that time communications were slow and intermittent and you know, a telegram would be dispatched from London or Glasgow and, and it would take time to get into the hands of whoever wanted it. And, and sometimes messages in correspondence would pass like ships in the night. By the time something arrived, it might actually be out of date in terms of a message that had, that had come the other way. So, you know, you could get out of step with one another. And the fact is, on the 26th of May 1906, Reynolds had struck oil. And he hadn't just struck oil, he'd found the world's largest oil field, known eventually as the Masjid Suleiman Field, which means the Mosque of Solomon. And it's a volume of oil, you just can't, you just can't conceive of it. I remember my, my father-in-law worked in the oil industry in Abu Dhabi for 20 odd years, and my brother-in-law still works in 
uh, for BP now, and he's in Iraq at the moment. But I remember saying to my father-in-law years ago when I was in my, I don't know, my early 20s, I said, how much oil's out there? You paint me a picture. And he said, well, if you imagine going out into the desert in a helicopter and flying over the desert in whatever, Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or whatever, and you'll see these, you know, these wellheads that are sitting capped on top of oil. They're not necessarily being exploited. He said, if you could take an enormous hammer and just knock them all off, knock these caps off, he said the oil would come out of the ground at full bore pressure. And it would keep coming out of the ground for like months and years. It just, he said, it's just, it's just waiting to come out of the ground there, and it still is. So imagine at the beginning. So in, in 06, they struck oil, and it, it, it was this biggest oil field in the world. And word eventually reached the British government uh, from Reynolds, and he sent a coded message because. A lot of money, a lot, of, a lot of potential here, and it was scripture. He, he quoted the Bible that he may bring out of the earth oil to make him a cheerful countenance, the flint stone into the springing well. It's from Psalm 104. If you go looking for it now, you'll find it, the longer quote: "He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil." to make his face to shine, and bread, which strengtheneth man's heart. So that was, you can imagine opening that letter back at HQ, back in London. Right, so he's, he's struck oil, sent his telegram, and it's the following month that he receives the telegram I mentioned at the top, saying, shut up shop and come home. And it was dated the 14th of June, so they, they passed like ships in the night. You know, he said, we got it, we found the oil. And I think I'd come back saying, you know, pack it in, you're never going to get there. It's hard to contextualise it, really. I mean, the story of the world just changes at that point. It keeps changing. The story of the world keeps changing, subject to events. But the discovery of oil in that part of the world, in those quantities, gave us the, the modern world that we have now. All the trouble in the world, really. And oil, subsequent to that discovery in the Zagros Basin, it was found all over the Middle East. The whole Arabian Peninsula, the whole thing. And then Iraq, uh, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, you know, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. It's there in the Caspian Sea. It's in the rock formations beneath the Caspian Sea. It's all over that part of the world. And in, in 1944, so, you know, a bit later, geologists... Everett de Gaulier estimated that 300 billion barrels of oil saturated the rock of the Middle East, and a third of it is in Saudi Arabia itself, making oil the greatest prize in all history. It's incalculable. I mean, in terms of estimates, 300 billion barrels of oil, I mean, there's speculation now. God forbid I should be called a conspiracy theorist, but there's a theory out there that says that oil is abiotic, early part of the 20th century, not long after people got into the business, they started calling it fossil fuel, that it was made from dead dinosaurs. And by calling it fossil fuels, it cultivated this idea that it was finite and diminishing. You were going to run out of it, and that, that, that keeps people on edge. But there is a, there's a fringe theory out there, and has been for some time, that oil is something that the planet makes. 
it's like the sweat of the rock. It's like it's like some mineral process that's a consequence of the planet being the planet it is. And that therefore there might always be oil. Don't know, like I say. So the world is altered forevermore. After World War One, right, Reynolds, the same guy that's found the biggest oil field in the world, he relocates to Venezuela at the top of South America, and there he finds the La Rosa field, which is another of the biggest oil fields ever discovered. So that one, the same self-taught prospector, whose name is largely forgotten, certainly not on the lips of the general public, one man single-handedly found two of the greatest sources of oil on opposite sides of the planet. And how many people now have ever heard of, of George Bernard Reynolds? But he it was. So it's, it's an incredible story. And, and obviously from oil flows obscene wealth. Wealth beyond the dreams of avarice. Uh, and has for a hundred years and will keep on going for who knows, who knows how long it will keep people rich. And from oil comes everything else, plastics, everything. Half the things in this room, in your room where you're sitting now, it's all made of oil one way or another. There's kind of a paradoxical irony that all, all, the, all the wind turbines and the solar panels and all the stuff that's supposed to replace oil is made from oil. <laughs> or you need oil to make it. You need that energy to make that stuff. Which begs the question, if you do away with all the oil fields, if you cut yourself away from that... And then the next round of wind turbines is needed because they only last 15, 20 years. You can't recycle them. They just end up in landfill. You can't reuse them. And what are you going to use to make the next set? Will you get enough energy from other wind turbines to make the wind turbines to replace the ones that are worn out if you don't have oil and gas or nuclear? It's, well, it's a conversation for another time and place. But the... the Another point to end on, really, is just to be aware that in so many instances, living on top of oil is a cause of great suffering, which is ironic. You'd think it would mean, you know, high high times for all, but it doesn't. It's the cause of war and privation and cruelty of every sort. Economists talk about the resource curse, which is a consideration of the way in which countries that are rich in oil let's say, have a tendency towards low economic growth for the people there. And there's there's often, there's mostly less democracy, less in the way of human rights for populations the closer they are to the oil. It's a bizarre one. I mean, you have to, you'd have to say, you know, which comes first? Because Norway, Norway's got oil and gas. And the last time I looked at Norway, it was a fairly democratic place and People were having their human rights looked after pretty well. So it's not it's not exclusively the case. But as we can all tell, look at the Holy Land. Look at the Middle East. Look at the, the most tr- troubled place on the planet. It's because of the oil. So as I said at the top, it's a blessing and it's a curse. But that discovery of that oil field in Persia in the first decade of the 20th century changed everything forever. Your country needs you. Build as the adventure of a lifetime. The call went out and within eight weeks, three quarters of a million British men had volunteered. 
For thousands, the first they saw action was the first day of the Battle of the Somme. For generations since, that single day came to symbolise the futility of war. 57,470 casualties, 19,240 of them dead, the deadliest day in British military history. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new content every week, sign up to the Neil Oliver site on patreon.com. I'd love to see you there. I have a new website address. It's easy for these complicated times. Uh, neiloliver.com Check out my shop for merchandise connected to the series. There's t-shirts and mugs and hoodies. My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. To help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening. Maybe write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.